Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome? both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Well, let's continue to read from Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And we'll end at verse 24. Really uh, goes on to really substantiate all that he has said from the Old Testament. Just a prayer together. Lord, we come now uh, to think about your word and we come to ask for your help As we do so, we pray that you will give us the uh, aid of the Holy Spirit and that he will illumine the truth and the pages before us. And we pray that you will come and minister and speak to each of us by your Spirit. May none of us uh, leave here without a sense that God said something to us today. 
We pray that humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Acts is a part of a two-volume work. It was written by a gentleman called Luke, we think, uh, and uh, we believe that Luke was a doctor, at least that's how he is referred to in Colossians 4, verse 14, that is, a medical doctor, a doctor of some use, not like some uh, others who are doctors and of very little use, at least if you're sick. Uh, I'm speaking to myself. Please don't be offended. Uh, The first gospel of Luke, uh, the first book of Luke uh, is the gospel which bears his name, and it's a book that he wrote, that is Luke, to inform a man called Theophilus about the life, death, resurrection, and continuing, uh, really, primarily to focus on the life, the the birth, the life, the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what the first book that he wrote is all about. And it's really written for the benefit of this gentleman called Theophilus. The second book, then, is the book of Acts. And uh, it is written to inform Theophilus that when Jesus died, that was not the end of the story, nor indeed when he ascended into heaven was that the end of the story. And the book of Acts is written to inform Theophilus that Jesus continues his work through his Spirit, in the lives of his people, the disciples, the followers, the believers, uh, call them what you will. That, that's the purpose of, of the second book. Now, the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem. That's where the gospel finds its beginnings, as Mark says at the beginning of his gospel, the beginnings of the gospel or the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ. So it begins in Jerusalem and it ends in the imperial city of Rome, which is the very nerve center, if you will, of the Roman Empire. And from there, of course, uh, the gospel will be disseminated throughout the empire. It will reach us, it will travel to the furthest reaches of the empire as soldiers are converted and carry the gospel with them and so on. Among the many things that we could say about the book of Acts, we would need to say that it is an adventure in faith, isn't it? It is a very, very exciting story. Um, In it you find Christians defying the commands of religious leaders to keep silent about Jesus. You see them getting on board ships and venturing into uncharted territory uh, with the good news of the gospel. You see them standing in market squares. You see them sitting in prison cells, having been beaten, declaring still the wonders of Jesus. So the book of Acts is really a very exciting book, and it's a book where the Christians appear to be on fire, don't you think? If you were to say anything about the Christians in the book of Acts, I think that you would need to say that, that it appears as if they are that it appears as if they are on fire for the Lord. They are living an exciting, adventurous Christian life. Now, how do you compare that with Christianity in the 21st century? What you read of in the book of Acts and what you see around you. Uh, Someone said to me some time back that uh, Christianity in the 21st century is, is as adventurous and exciting as a glass of flat coke. The truth is we have become stale and we are very, very predictable. Now, The book of Acts is a great study because it has so much to teach us. And uh, 
wouldn't it be wonderful just to capture a little of the spirit of these early Christians? And I'm really excited that we're having a chance to study it a little bit later on. Hopefully this will whet your appetite just a little. Now, Acts chapter 2, the passage that Ian read for us, comes immediately after Acts chapter 1. That's not exactly a great breakthrough of uh, knowledge. But it is interesting to notice how Acts 2 and Acts 1, or Acts 1 and Acts 2, contrast with each other. So in Acts chapter 1, you see the Savior ascends into heaven. In Acts chapter 2, you see that the Holy Spirit descends from heaven. Uh, In Acts chapter 1, we see that the disciples are told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, that Holy Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are held back. They are told not to launch on with the mission. They are to wait in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, their waiting is over, and you see them launching out into the work that they will engage in throughout the rest of the book. Now, Acts chapter 2 is a remarkable occasion, a remarkable a remarkably historical occasion. It, it, it was, of course, the Feast of Pentecost. The word Pentecostos means 50th, um, and the Feast of Pentecost took place 50 days after the Passover. So that's why it was called Pentecost. Now, 50 days is seven weeks, um, if my mathematics are right. And that's why sometimes the Feast of Pentecost is referred to as the Feast of Weeks. It's also referred to on occasions as the Feast of Harvest, because it marked the beginning of the grain harvest. And so it's interesting that God's Spirit came... uh, at the time of a feast which marked the beginning of the harvest. Was there some significance in that? Was God making a statement that now had come the time for a harvest, a spiritual harvest of the world? And before that day is through, 3,000 people will be harvested, as it were, swept into the kingdom. 3,000 people will have come to believe in Christ. Another interesting background detail, which I think is important in in our study of Acts chapter 2, and more could be said about a whole lot of this, but during the intertestamental period, so the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, the Feast of Pentecost also became associated or was used, if you like, to commemorate the giving of the law to Moses and, and of course, to Israel. And you remember Exodus 19, Exodus 20, the supernatural phenomenon that took place on the mountain when the Israelites came out of Egypt. So 50 days after they came out of Egypt, the Jews believed they arrived at Mount Sinai, and it was then that God gave them the law, and there was thunder and lightning as the presence of God descended on this mountain. And uh, the atmosphere was one of sparking spiritual electricity as God gave the law to Moses and then Moses to the people. And uh, so a new chapter was opening up in the lives of God's people as they received the law of Moses. Here in Acts chapter 2 is is the turning over of another new chapter in the lives of God's people as the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them, to empower them, Uh, to equip them for the mission that they've been entrusted with and to write the law not on tablets of stone but on the tablets of their hearts. 
And so you have the same kind of supernatural phenomenon marking the beginning of this new chapter in Acts chapter 2 in the same way that it marked the beginning of a new chapter in Exodus chapter 19. You've got the sound of rushing wind and you've got the fire as, as tongues descend from heaven and, and then divide and rest on each of them, seemingly signifying that, that their experience of, of God and of the Holy Spirit is going to be much more individual uh, from this point onwards. So then, all of that by way of introduction and a little bit uh, by way of background material, let's look at Acts chapter 2, let's think about these early Christians, and let's just try and pick up a couple of things or several things um, about them. Don't be scared by the long list. Uh, we'll make our way through them as quick as we can. Uh, if you feel that we're dragging a little on the second one, I promise you that we'll pick up pace as we get out of the second one and into the rest of them. The first thing that I want you to notice is that they were united. It says in verse 1, they were all together in one place. They were all together in one place. Now, they were obviously together geographically in that they were in the same room, but they were together in more ways than that, and they were together in more ways than one. And you get a sense of their, of their togetherness if you just pop back into the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 14. You get a sense of their togetherness when it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You see, the disciples had been told in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, that they were to wait in Jerusalem and that they would be baptized in not too many days' time with the Holy Spirit. They were told that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and that they would be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem first, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so what you have in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, is the disciples praying together, waiting together, seeking God together for, for the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus had given to them. That's what you have in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. You have the disciples here together, and there's a sense of unity, and there's a determination to wait until they are equipped for the task that they've been entrusted with. Now, I find that uh, hugely interesting. They've been locked up for 10 days, these disciples, in the same room. And there's some very interesting personalities, some prickly personalities in the room. You've got Peter there, Mr. Impulsive. Remember him? Mr. Legs out over the side of the boat. Mr. Lunging at the high priest's servant with the knife. Peter's there, Mr. Impulsive. The man who's often in action before the cogs of his brain have fully engaged. And then you've got James and John, the sons of thunder. Remember them? Let's just call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritan village, Jesus, that won't welcome you and your, and, your, and, your, and your disciples. Let's call fire down from heaven to consume them, the sons of thunder. And of course, you've also got Simon the Zealot, man who hated everything Roman. At one point in his life, probably carried a little knife in his cloak, which uh, was there to dispatch Roman soldiers if the opportunity should ever arise. And then you've got Matthew in the same room as Simon the Zealot. You've got Matthew, who had spent his life collecting taxes from his own people and handing it to the occupying forces, the Romans, whom Simon hates. 
Yet here they are in the same room and they've been together for 10 days and it has all of the potential to go horribly wrong but they are still together and there is no sign of any uh, fractious behavior. There's no dissension. There's no sign of impatience. Nobody's saying, oh, let's just forget about waiting. Let's launch on with the mission. We've been given the mission. We have to go into the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy. Why don't we just continue with the mission? None of that. They're together in one place and their togetherness is is, 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 is focused on waiting until uh, the promise has been fulfilled and they've been fully equipped for the task to which they have been called. They're united in their thoughts. They want to obey Jesus. They are united in their prayers. They are praying for the fulfillment of the promise. Unity is an important factor as we engage in the work of God. It's an important ingredient in the life of any church. Now, I'm not uh, talking about unity at the expense of truth. That, that, the kind of suggestion that, that let's all forgo our convictions and hold hands and enjoy warm and fuzzy feelings. I'm not talking about that kind of unity. That kind of unity which sacrifices the gospel is actually treason. But I ask this question, how often in evangelical gospel-focused churches, how often is our division about things like the sufficiency of the atonement or the nature of the Trinity or the, the two natures of Christ? Not very often, if ever. For the most part, it's about things like the time of the morning services or the color of the walls in the church. I don't like them green. I want them to be red. More often than not, than not, we become divided and fractious over elementary and, and immaterial things like this. We sometimes sing the song, don't we? Onward Christian soldiers. Sometimes I chuckle to myself, myself because I wonder, are we really soldiers? And if we are the Lord's army, and if we are on an onward march, why do we spend so much time fighting with each other in the barracks, might I add? Long before we get to the battlefield, we're assaulting each other in the barracks as we wound each other. There's a psalm which speaks about unity. It's known almost to every Christian under the sun. Behold how good and pleasing or pleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. It's there that the Lord commands the blessing where, where brothers and sisters are, are, are joined together in unity. It's there that the Lord commands the blessing. But people end there. They don't go on and read the rest of the psalm. What is the blessing? The blessing is life. Vitality, wholeness, vigor. That's the blessing that, that Christians who are united enjoy. A sense of wholeness, a sense of vibrancy, a sense of life. But you go to a church that's divided and where members are, 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 are at war with each other, there's no real sense of wholeness or oneness or vibrancy. There's a deathliness that hangs over the church and over every, almost everyone in it. I've been in team, on, on mission teams where there have been one or two awkward individuals and it's made life very difficult for everyone else and you just can't wait till the team is over till you get away from it all. It's so difficult. Let's not be like that. Let's be those who contribute to 
the unity of the church, not its disunity. Let's be peacemakers, not troublemakers. Let's be people who pour in the oil uh, for the smooth running of the church rather than those who uh, throw in all manner of things that will make it arduous and difficult for everyone else. Unity. These people were blessed unbelievably. 3,000 people were converted in one day as a result of one of the sermons that, these people, that, that one of these people actually preached. But let's just remember this. These people were unbelievably united. Unbelievably united. And unity is so important in the work of the gospel. And some of us are thinking, not me, but some of you are thinking about joining a church planting team. And uh, unity in that context is so important. Be a peacemaker. Strive hard for the unity of the Spirit and to keep the bond of peace. Don't allow uh, yourself to become the person who is instrumental in breaking that and destroying that. Second thing is that they were not only united, they were spirit-filled. In the Old Testament, um, a believer's experience of the Holy Spirit is really difficult to quantify. Uh, That's my perception of it anyway. It's very difficult to quantify an Old Testament believer's experience of the Holy Spirit, they must have had some kind of an experience of the Holy Spirit because you cannot believe without the energizing power and enabling of the Holy Spirit. It's just impossible. Yet, as you go through the Old Testament, you do get hints that that the prophets are expecting a time when, when things will be different and Our experience of the Spirit will be much more intensified. Uh, For instance, you've got Ezekiel 36 verse 27, speaking in the context of idolatry, where God's people have forgotten the God that brought them out of Egypt, and they've run after idols that are blind and deaf and lifeless and useless. And they've gone and worshipped these idols, rather than the God Yahweh who brought them out of Egypt. And speaking in that context, Ezekiel the prophet says on God's behalf, I will put my spirit in you. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. So you get the sense and you get it repeatedly in, in, the, in the writings of the prophets that there's a day coming when, when a person's experience of a believer's experience of the Holy Spirit will be vastly different than it was then. And then you come into the Gospels and you meet this odd character who does everything that we are told at church planting conferences we should never do. He dresses in weird clothing. He goes away from people to the wilderness rather than to people. And people flock to listen to him. And what's his message? I can baptize you with water. But the one who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And even Jesus speaks to his disciples about Sending the the comforter. Sending the paraclete who will draw alongside them. Sending the Holy Spirit who will bring everything to their remembrance. John 14, 26. Everything that he had taught taught them, Jesus had taught them, the Holy Spirit would bring bring those things to their remembrance. And that is the thing that Jesus told them to wait for in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
They are to wait for the coming of this Holy Spirit to begin His new covenant ministry, His new testament ministry. He will come, and and that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. And of course, all kinds of uh, strange phenomena mark the coming of the Spirit. There is there's wind. Wind is often associated with God in the Old Testament. It's the Ruach of God that breathes life into man. It's the Ruach of God that, that sweeps over the valley of dead bones in Ezekiel 37 and gives it life. And here in Acts chapter 2, you've got this wind, this life-giving power of God sweeping through the building that the disciples are in. And fire, tongues of fire uh, descend. Fire is often associated with God in the Old Testament. God speaks to Moses from the middle of a burning bush. And then you've got the cloud of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. So you've got all of these things that symbolize and signify the presence of God. And, and then you've got them filled with the Spirit. And then you've got them enabled to speak languages that they had never learned. They go down onto the streets and they begin to speak in languages that they had never learned. Now, the sound of rushing wind and the tongues of fire are never repeated again in the book of Acts. The only thing that's repeated in the book of Acts is actually this speaking in languages that they had not learned. It's repeated in, probably in Acts chapter 8 when the gospel reaches the Samaritans. See, the Jews would never have accepted the Samaritans as equal brothers and sisters in the family of faith. But God gave them their own Pentecost. His seal that God had accepted them. And then in Acts chapter 10, the household of Cornelius, the first Gentile to receive the gospel and to experience salvation. And he too is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to speak in, in tongues. And, and God is saying to the Jews, I know you're going to struggle to accept these Gentiles, but just remember, they too received the same Spirit that you received. And then there's one other incident in, in uh, Acts chapter 19, a bit of an odd incident where people who had never really heard about Jesus or the Holy Spirit, followers of John the Baptist, were baptized and they too received the Holy Spirit. Now, the point that I am trying to make is, is this. Listen, if you are a Christian, You have the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. Romans 8 verse 9, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. It's impossible to be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit, but there is still a sense in which we should be filled by the Spirit. And when you look at the commands to be filled by the Spirit in the New Testament, it's really interesting couple of words which are used, and the the first one is pleru. Acts chapter 6. Go and appoint seven men to care for these widows and take care of practical matters so that the apostles can give themselves to the preaching of the word and to prayer. And when you're picking seven men, make sure they are filled with the Holy Spirit. What did that mean? How, How would they know that they are filled with the Holy Spirit? Surely the fruit of the Spirit would be dangling from the branches of their lives. Surely it would become apparent that the Holy Spirit permeated every area, every aspect, every attitude. Ephesians 5.18 Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery and and stupidness. But be uh, filled or be controlled or be influenced by the Holy Spirit. 
So we have to be filled by the Spirit in the sense that we are to be under the influence of the Spirit. Not under the influence of alcohol, but under the influence of the Spirit. The Spirit is to control us and direct us and, and, and determine how we respond to scenarios and our attitudes and our behavior. And, and the fruit of the Spirit should be dangling from the branches of our lives as people come into contact with us. And in that sense, we need to be filled by the Spirit in an ever-increasing way. But it's interesting, the word which is used in Acts 2 verse 4 is not pleru, it's the word pimplemai. And it carries this sense of being filled up and, and it's used in the context of being empowered. So here in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, they are filled with the Spirit and, then, and empowered to go down onto the streets to preach to the crowds who have gathered. But it's also used in Acts chapter 4 verse 8, which is a really interesting little story of Peter being called onto the mat and told to stop preaching about Jesus by the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, or the Sanhedrin, however you want to pronounce it. And, and Peter turns to them, and we're told in Acts 4 verse 8, being filled with the Spirit, he turned and spoke to them and said, should I obey you, or should I obey God? Should I obey men, or should I obey God? I'm not going to stop speaking about Jesus. And, and you say to yourself, is this Peter? Really? Like a few nights, 50 days ago, a little servant girl said, aren't you one of that Galilean preacher's disciples? And he said, oh no, not me. Oh, I, don't, I swear to you, I don't even know him. But now look at him. Look at, his, look at him as, he, as he's filled by the Spirit and emboldened to speak to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish rulers, and telling them to their face, I'm not, speak, stops, I'm not going to stop speaking about Jesus. See, he's empowered by the Spirit. The same is true at Acts 4.31 where uh, they pray and then they're filled by the Spirit and they go out and speak to the people outside the house. Listen, I... I not only need to be filled by the Spirit in the sense that I need to be under the Spirit's influence, I also need to be empowered by the Spirit. Don't you? And not just once, but every day of my life. And the reason I fall flat on my spiritual face before lunchtime is because I pay lip service to the Holy Spirit. But I don't really live in the reality of the Spirit. But we need to live in the reality of the Spirit and the Spirit's empowering and the Spirit's enabling to be the people that God wants us to be. I was in a company of, of men on one occasion that were speaking to a young person, younger person. When you're 50, everybody's almost young, but younger than me at least. And uh, he, had, he had been out to shadow John Piper for 10 days. And he had come back and this group of men were chatting to him and one person said to him, so what was it that struck you most about your 10 days with Piper? You know what he said? That really struck with, a chord with me. He said, what struck me most was when the elders of the church gathered around Piper on Sunday morning and put their hands on him and prayed that God would fill him with his spirit so that he would be empowered to preach the word with clarity and boldness and, and conviction. He says, I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. And the truth is, we pay lip service to the Holy Spirit. But we don't really live in the reality of the Spirit's empowering and the Spirit's controlling influence. 
But here are Christians in Acts chapter 2, and they are spirit-filled. They're not only united, but they are spirit-filled, spirit-enabled, spirit-controlled. And I long for more of that in my own in my own life. The third thing is that they were relevant. The third thing is that they were relevant. Now, the Feast of Pentecost comes 50 days after the Passover. So if the Passover was in April, that means that the Feast of Pentecost came early June, came in early June. That was the best time of year for traveling. The shipping lines or lanes in the Mediterranean had all well and truly opened up, and uh, travel was was at its optimum. It was easiest to travel early June. And so Pentecost was one of the best attended feasts in the Jewish calendar. People came from all around the Mediterranean basin and further afield, further east, to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. Now, uh, when Ian read the passage, he listed 16 different nations that were represented, or 16 different people groups, language groups. And it's unlikely that very many of them could have spoken Aramaic. Very, very unlikely that many of them could have spoken Aramaic, which was the language spoken in Jerusalem at the time. But the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, so much so that they went down the stairs and onto the streets, and they began to speak to the people who had come from all of these nations in their home language. These Galilean men who had spent their lives in Galilee were enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak languages that they had never learned. So much so that the crowds were able to hear the gospel. It says the wonders of God. Tell me, what is one of the greatest wonders of God? Surely one of the greatest wonders of God is the sending of His Son into this world to die upon a cross. What a miracle of grace. What a wonder that is. And when it says they were extolling the wonders of God, I think they were extolling the gospel in the hearing of these people. And uh, what I want you to see, because I think it's often missed, is that God wanted these visitors to Jerusalem to hear the gospel in their own language, in the language that they spoke. God wanted them to be engaged in a meaningful, engaging way right there on the streets of Jerusalem. And, and so I, I sometimes ask myself this question, how engaging are we in the Christian church in the 21st century? People come into our church buildings and they hear people like me talking about new covenant sense. And what, what sense do they make of that? One side says, well, I'm Calvinistic and Reformed. And another says, well, I'm Arminian, so there you can put that in your pipe and smoke that. And On and on the discussions go, I'm amillennial and I'm dispensational. And people come into our churches and make absolutely no sense of it. When was the last time we really tried to engage people with, in the language that they spoke, with the good news, the wonder of Jesus? Because that's what God did on, on, on the day of Pentecost. He engaged visitors in their own language, the language that they spoke, with the wonder of the story of Jesus. Here's the fourth thing. Uh, I need to pick up the pace and I'm going to try and do that. They were bold. They were bold. People clearly didn't know what to make of what was happening. So 16 nations mentioned, only 12 disciples, 12 apostles. So that means there are at least four people groups 
who don't understand anything at, at a given time. And people are coming to the conclusion this is madness. These people are drunk. They've been drinking too much alcohol and, and, and now they're just rambling and ranting. And no one, Some people just have no idea what's going on. But look at the response of Peter. Peter says, no, no, they're not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. How in the world could they be drunk? It's nine o'clock in the morning. He said, what you see happening here is what was foretold by the prophets. And he takes them into the Old Testament. He speaks about Joel and he speaks about some of the other uh, Old Testament prophecies concerning what would take place. And he says, all of this is, all of this is, is, is what was spoken of by the prophets. And he sensed the boldness of Peter, don't you? There's no shying back. Aren't you one of that Galilean preacher's disciples? Oh no, not me. I swear to you, I don't know him. Look at him now, standing on the streets of Jerusalem, facing the crowds and saying to the crowds, uh, no, no, they're not drunk as you suppose. All of this was spoken of in the Old Testament. What's happened to Peter? The Holy Spirit is what has happened to Peter. And he is filled with boldness, Holy Spirit boldness, as he faces the crowd. We are so apologetic about the fact that we are Christians. We hold our heads and our chests and mumble, oh, I'm going to the CU tonight, and we're hoping that no one will ever hear us. Why don't we stand a little bit taller for Jesus and be a little bolder in our proclamation of who Jesus is and who he is to us? Why don't we adopt a little bit of the spirit of Martin Luther, who, when he was called to the Diet of Worms for his thesis, which he nailed to the door of Wittenberg Castle, and they said to him, you've got to renounce it. And he spends the night thinking about it and comes back the next day. And, and he says to, to them, my conscience is captive by the word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. Or Athanasius. They came to Athanasius and they said to him on one occasion, the whole world is against you. You know what he said to them in response? Well, I am against the whole world. Now, I'm not sure about his philosophy. I'm not sure that we should be against the whole world in that sense. But what courage and boldness. Don't you long for a little bit of the boldness that you see in the Christians in Acts 2 and throughout the remaining chapters? A boldness that's prepared to stand up and be counted for Jesus? Here is the fourth thing. They were team-oriented. Sometimes we think to ourselves, Peter was the one that preached a great sermon and, and, and uh, 3,000 people were converted. But that's not what we're told in verse 14. We're told Peter stood up flanked by the 11. The other disciples were standing shoulder to shoulder with him. This was a team effort. This was not a one-man band here. These men are in this work together. And all of them, even... All of them have got a part to play. I mean, some of, the, some of the chaps down the line just stood there and smiled at people. That's their, that was the sum total of their, of their role. But they had a role to play. And, and the truth is, they were in it together. And I just want you to know that we're in this work together. The work of the gospel. The work of this church. It's not a one-man show or a five-man show. We're all, all of us have a part to play. Some of us might think our part is very insignificant, but it's not. In the eyes of the Lord, it's a crucially important role. 
I spent a summer one year in a place called Port Rush, if you've ever heard of Port Rush. And uh, I was involved in uh, gospel as a young person, gospel outreach for a summer. Anyway, uh, I met a man there, and you know what he did with himself? He spent his entire time picking up cardboard. He'd gather up boxes, and his house was packed full of cardboard. Went to visit him. Every room in the house packed full of cardboard. And once in a while, an Arctic lorry would pull up. And he would gather up a team, and he would fill the lorry with, with the cardboard that he had collected over several months. And they would pay him a few pounds, and he would take that few pounds, and he would send it to missionaries that he prayed for and supported. He viewed that as his role in the work of the kingdom, collecting cardboard. All of us have got a role in the work of the kingdom. Let's do it with all of our might. Here's the fourth thing I want you to notice. They were Bible-focused. Or they were Bible-centered, maybe is a better way. I think that's how I put it, was it? No, Bible-focused. They were Bible-focused and Christ-centered. If you take time to look at the sermon that Peter preaches, you'll see that he takes them on a jet tour, a whistle-stop tour of the Old Testament. He takes them to the book of Joel, and he says, you know, Joel spoke that, about this. Joel said that this would happen. And then he takes them to Psalm 16 and he talks about the resurrection of Christ. You know, David spoke about the resurrection of Christ. I will not let my Holy One see decay. And uh, how could he be speaking about anyone other than the Messiah? He himself is dead and long since decayed. And, and then he takes them to Psalm 68 and he just weaves his way through the Old Testament. A bit like Jesus on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples. He began with Moses and through all the scriptures he spoke of himself. That's exactly what Peter does in his sermon. He just preaches the Bible to them. Like sometimes I go and I hear these talks, I, so I get to trundle all over the place. And sometimes I just wish people would preach the Bible. Because the Bible is the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. The Bible is the sword that will pierce deep into people's hearts. The Bible is a light to our feet and a lamp on our path. Isn't it? It's God's Word that is ultimately important. It's God's Word that is powerful and life-changing and life-transforming. My words, your words might be important, but they are insignificant in comparison to the good Word of God. Don't be embarrassed about the Bible. The Bible does not need to be defended. The Bible needs to be unleashed. And see God at work through the Bible. Read it, share it, talk about it to other people. And you might be surprised what happens through it. They were Bible focused. And finally, I want you to notice, they were Christ centered. If you look at their sermon, at Peter's sermon, and we had, didn't even take time to read it all. But if you took time to read it all and, and think about what he said. He talks about Jesus. Talks about his life. He says... This man was attested to us by miracles. In other words, who else could feed a, a, a crowd of 500 family units with a little boy's lunch, uh, five loaves and two fish? Who else could do that? Have you ever met anyone else who could do that? Have you ever met anyone else who could stand outside the grave of someone who was dead for four days and cry, Lazarus, come forth, and out he comes, still dressed in, in his grave clothes? I met a young man on Princess Street one day and he right up into my face and he, he said, why Jesus? And I said, why Jesus? 
I said, have you ever met anyone else who can stand outside the grave of someone who is dead and call them to come forth? And they come forth. That's why Jesus, he is the incomparable Christ. Anyway, let's get back to Acts 2. Acts 2, uh, Peter says he's been attested to us by miracles. Then he talks about his death. And he says, you know, this death was by the purposes of foreknowledge of God. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an accident. The prophets spoke about this. He'd be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And then he speaks about his resurrection. And he takes them back into the Old Testament again and proves the resurrection of Christ and the theology of the resurrection. Then he talks about his, his ascension. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he just tells them about Jesus. That's all he does. And at the end of it, they're struck down with conviction and they ask, what must we do to be saved? You know, I, I sometimes, uh, not sometimes, most weekends I'm away somewhere trundling around the countryside and I get to share in events here and there and everywhere and I get on occasions the opportunity to listen to other preachers, which is a joy for the most part. But sometimes I listen to people and they wax eloquently on themes like judgment and all kinds of things and sometimes I sit there and think, when are these people ever going to tell us about Jesus? His loveliness. His grace. Look at him sitting with the woman at the well whose life had been full of brokenness and disappointment. Look at the way he talks to her as if she means and matters and as if she is the most important person in the world. When are they going to tell us about the loveliness of Jesus? When are they going to tell us about his atoning death and the fact that he loved us and gave himself for us? When are they going to tell us about his resurrection, his triumph over the grave, so that he comes and whispers in, in our ears, because I live, you will live also. And when are they going to tell us about his ascension and the fact that he is the exalted one who sits on the throne of the universe until such times as his enemies will be made his footstool? When will they tell us about Jesus? I think it's the message of Jesus that transforms lives. I'm finished with this story. I was taking part in an event in Toronto. And after uh, the event, a young man came up to me. Not that young, actually. Um, anyway, he came up to me and he said to me, um, he said to me, I'm from Ireland. And of course, I spent a chunk of my life there, so I found that interesting. And we began to talk and he began to tell me his story. He said, I was a Mormon missionary, he said. And uh, I, I was working in England. And uh, I was on my way back to Dublin and I got the ferry to Belfast from Liverpool. And I got off the, the, the ferry in, in Belfast and I was walking, you know, with my suit and my badge and my cases. And I was walking through the streets of Belfast and, and he said, uh, this little man from the Siemens Christian Mission, his name was Walter Burrell, pulled up beside me in a red Sierra car. So that shows you how long ago it is. And he rolled down the window and he just said, hi. And I said, Hi. And then he looked at me straight in the eye, that old man, and he said to me, he, this is the chap from Dublin speaking he's about the, the, the little man that stopped, and he said, he said to me, what are you doing, son? What are you doing? He said, no church can save you. Only Jesus can save you. Jesus is the only way to heaven, he said. And that's about all he said. He rolled up the window and he drove on. And he said, I couldn't get what that man said to me out of my head. I, I went home to Dublin and, and it tormented me. Jesus is the only way to heaven. 
No church can save you. Jesus is the only way. And he says several weeks later, I discovered there was a Christian church, a brethren assembly in our town. And he said, I went one morning and I cornered the leaders after the service and I said, you'll need to tell me who this Jesus is and how I can get to know him and how I can begin to follow him. And he said, that was the morning that I became a Christian. The power of the message of Jesus is life transforming. So those were the list of things. They were united, spirit-filled, relevant. They were bold, courageous, team-oriented. They were in it together, Bible-focused. Their message was on the Bible, and they were Christ-centered. They told people about Jesus. As the worship team come to lead us in our final praise, let's pray for a moment. Father, we look at the book of Acts and we feel, uh, we, feel, we feel like paupers in comparison to these early Christians. And we long that somehow you would work in us something of what you worked in them. Make us courageous. Fill us with your Spirit, Lord. Sometimes we see that we are far too self-controlled Fill us with your spirit so that we can be spirit-controlled and spirit-enabled and spirit-empowered. And Father, we pray that you'll give us a burden just to tell people about Jesus, his loveliness and his atoning death and his victorious resurrection and his glorious ascension. And Lord, help us to be convinced of the uniqueness and the greatness of Jesus. And uh, help us to communicate that in the lives that we live and in the words that we speak to the people that are all around us every day. And help us, Lord, to engage them in a meaningful way, uh, in a way that's relevant, in a way that makes them somehow think, but think in a good way about our Savior. We pray that you'll help us now as we sing our final praise. Amen.